my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. Blank is the killer. Welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky seventh topic at the end. I'm Josh Baker, your favorite host of this particular podcast, and this episode I'll be talking about ghost hostages, gullible AI, and monster GFs. Now let's load up a ghoul finder and swipe right on all the scariest potential partners together. Number 1, The Vault, 2017, directed by Dan Bush. A family and some accomplices attempt to rob a bank. A hostage with a mustache helps them. The bank is haunted from the last time the bank was robbed. Ghosts kill most of the bank robbers. Two sisters escape with haunted money. The ghost of the original robber follows them. Hostages are questioned, and it's revealed that the hostage with the mustache was one of the victims of the original robbery. The original robber and his hostages are the killers. James Franco plays the mustache hostage that's actually a ghost who died during the first bank robbery massacre. This isn't surprising. I watched this with Kat, and she guessed it right off the bat. They do some things to make you believe that you might be wrong, but James Franco is ultimately a ghost. James Franco? He's been dead for 30 years! There are multiple shots of him in the movie for the sole point of yelling, James Franco is in this movie, which get a tad annoying after a while. This movie combines two of my favorite genres, heist and horror. The movie is set in present day. The brother in the movie owes money to some bad people, so he, his sisters, and some randos decide to rob a bank. Why not just skip town, debt man? I mean, you'll have to skip town after robbing the bank anyway? I get that criminal networks are scary, but I don't think they really have the numbers and overall surveillance that the police and FBI have. It would probably be way harder for Tommy Toothface the Shark, the unconfirmed name of the person the brother owes money to, and his gang of salty seamen, also unconfirmed, to find you. I just assume the guy they owe money to has sharp teeth and gang headquarters located on some dingy boat anchored at some shady dock. We are given a rundown of the original heist that happened in 1982. One really deranged individual kept a bunch of people hostage for days. He had them kill each other, killed some himself in various ways, and somehow got away. I think the flashbacks to this sadistic OG robber are much scarier than the modern day ghosts. Maybe because it's something that could actually happen. Not to me. I can't even remember the last time I actually went inside a bank. They are never open. The ghosts actually start off looking nice and creepy. They are mostly old hostages with bloody bags on their heads. This works. What doesn't work is the ghost of the OG robber. He has a mask that makes him look like a cheaper version of the killer from a movie called Hush, which I covered in an earlier episode. The vault would be so much better if more time was spent 
on the OG Robert's design. Give him a mask that makes him look as scary as he acts. When the ghost's actual faces are shown, the makeup effects are pretty bad. They have a very dated undead look that doesn't fit with the rest of the movie's aesthetic. They are that dark shade of army green and look all rubbery. Luckily, they aren't shown very much, but we get a face full of mediocre makeup effects when the brother tries to help a girl who ends up being a ghost. There is some well done gore in this movie. A guy gets shot in the leg which leaves a gnarly wound. The ghosts force two of the current day robbers to kill themselves in graphic fashion. They make one robber drill into his own head and another robber blow his own head off with a shotgun. The ghosts really like destroying heads for some reason. We see the drill scene and it's nice and grotesque. For the shotgun, we see the aftermath which looks good. All of this is done practically. Most of the sound design in this movie is fine barring two bad instances. The first being a loud pointless sound played while the ghost of OG Robber walks behind one of the characters. Come on, you don't need to add a pointless loud sound. It's either creepy or it isn't. Adding a loud sound just makes it annoying. The movie also uses half of an overused scream. The one that goes, uh, It's called the Howie scream, if you want to look it up and hear how it's supposed to sound. Any scream at all would feel out of place in the scene it's used in, which makes the inclusion of such an obvious stock scream a real head-scratcher. One really annoying aspect of the movie is the brother. They are robbing this bank and he almost starts crying because his sisters are being violent during the bank robbery. I'm not sure what he expected. There's a moment in the movie where the sister in charge finally realizes they have to deal with the police and ghosts. Hoy vey. They just can't catch a break today. The acting in the vault is all over the place. There are some scenes where the acting is great and others where it's ridiculous. The best acting comes from Francesca Eastwood who plays the sister that's the leader. Taryn Manning from Orange is the New Black fame is also in this. She does alright. She's pretty typecast but plays the scummy criminal character well enough. The Vault is an enjoyable time. It's not incredible, but if you're in the mood for a movie that has a heist and spooky specters, check it out. Number 2, Tao, 2018, directed by Federico D'Alessandro. A girl named Julia gets kidnapped by a rich tech guy named Alex. Alex is trying to make a new type of artificial intelligence by studying the brain functions of people he kidnaps. Julia leads an escape which ends with the other captives she was with being killed by Alex's house AI, Tao. The deadline for Alex's new AI is approaching, and the escape attempt destroyed his lab. Julia is able to bargain with Alex because of this. Julia befriends Tao and eventually escapes Alex's house after initiating its self-destruct sequence. Alex dies during the process. Alex and Tao are the killers. Alex killed his captives when he was done getting information from them, Tao killed people that tried to escape. This movie was advertised to me as a sci-fi torture horror movie. From the trailer, it appeared to be similar to the movie Cube from 1997, which is a great time. Tao is basically a sci-fi Beauty and the Beast. Julia is Belle, and Alex is the bad side of the Beast, while Tao is the good side. I am pretty sure the first half of this movie is the story of how Grimes ended up with Elon Musk. Surprisingly, Gary Oldman is the voice of Tao. I guess he was looking for a chill role after his Academy Award-winning performance in Darkest Hour. He's not bad in Tao. Great computer AI voice.
Micah Monroe plays Julia. She's probably best known for playing the main character in It Follows, a movie I need to see again. I didn't love It Follows the first time I watched it, but I wasn't in a movie-watching mood at the time. Micah's acting is not great in Tao. The guy who plays Alex does fine, but practically anyone can play that character. Tao isn't a bad movie, but it's nothing special. There's a lot of CGI which looks fine for the most part. When Tao is in robot form, it looks off, but it's still better than a lot of CGI in movies. There is minimal gore in this movie. You see Tao use one of his robot arms to impale one of the escapees. It looks okay, but the gore is not a big part of the film. The most practical gore you see is when Alex removes a brain implant. That scene is well done. Tao is filled with ridiculous things that don't make sense. Some things happen solely because they need to. First example, Julia is some type of MacGyver genius. She steals some scissors while Alex isn't looking, uses them to cut strips of cloth from the clothes she and the other captives have, makes a grappling hook with the scissors and cloth strips, throws the grappling hook onto a random pipe, and pulls on the hook to pull the pipe off the wall. Why? To cause an explosion that blows up the whole lab, and also the bars of the cell she and the other captives are locked behind. Duh. How does she have any idea that this will work? She doesn't. I can suspend my disbelief when it comes to a lot of crazy stuff, but this scene is so unbelievable and ridiculous. Later in the movie, Julia is talking to Alex. For some unknown reason, Alex basically gives her an entire rundown on how to take advantage of the AI that runs the entire house. Gee, Alex, I wonder if there is any way that telling your captive the weaknesses of the AI entity that is keeping her in check will backfire. Alex is supposed to be a genius, and telling Julia this information is just plain dumb. Another instance of it had to happen this way for plot reasons, Julia gets to jump on Alex with a knife. She viciously stabs him all over in vital areas and escapes. Well, that's what she should have done if it wasn't for the writing. Instead, she uses her attack of opportunity to lightly slash his stomach. She doesn't even stab him. If someone had kidnapped me and led on that I was going to be killed once he was done sucking my brain data, you better believe I'm going to go stab crazy if given the chance. Julia has surprise on her side and everything. If someone starts attacking you with a knife out of nowhere, no matter what the size difference is, the attacker is going to be able to do enough lethal damage if they are trying to. Look up how to defend against a close quarter knife attack. You can't. Now on to some other gripes that didn't affect the plot as much. During the original escape attempt, one of the captives puts his hand on the hand scanner that opens up the front door. Really captive? Obviously that's going to sound an alarm, you dingus. Why did you think that would work? Why wasn't Tao automatically handling the escape situation after the explosion? How is Julia able to plant a metal bar into a concrete wall? If she's that jacked, why doesn't she just punch her way out of this situation? Why doesn't Alex just pay people to let him scan their brains? Does he really have to kill them during extraction? Last but certainly not least of my gripes, why in the name of all that is holy, is a Wilhelm scream used for Alex's death. Alex gets crushed by debris during the house's self-destruct sequence. He gets crushed and then we get a completely out of place, scene ruining, immersion killing Wilhelm scream. The Wilhelm scream is the OG dead meme. 
Please stop putting it in movies. Please. It's not funny at all. It's not clever. It's lazy, lame, and groan-inducing. Tao doesn't do anything that's worth seeing. If you're looking for a crazy AI thriller, watch Alex Garland's Ex Machina instead. Number 3, Uncle Sam, 1996, directed by William Lustig. A soldier named Sam Harper was killed by friendly fire. Now undead, he kills some other soldiers before his body is recovered. His remains are taken to his sister's house. His nephew Jody is a huge patriot. Uncle Sam starts killing a bunch of people in town. He is eventually taken down with a cannon that another army guy, Jed, shoots at Sam twice. Jody throws away all of his army toys and might be possessed by his Uncle Sam's spirit at the end. Uncle Sam is the killer. This movie is maximum 90s cheese. To watch it, I had to go to an alternate earth where the oceans are filled with liquid cheese. I donned a futuristic diving suit, which allowed me to make my way to the bottom of the mozzarella-filled Mariana Trench. Once I was at the deepest point, I rescued a haunted VHS tape that had Uncle Sam recorded over some doom couple's 1988 wedding. I hope that nonsense really helped paint a picture of how insanely cheesy this movie is. It has terrible one-liners, for example, Uncle Sam kills a punk dude who was desecrating graves by burying the jabroni alive. Now I want everyone to take a second and think of a good one-liner to say after you bury someone alive. I'll wait. Yep, you buried him alive and you're, you're going to give him a one-liner. Okay, got one? I came up with, rest in peace, dirtbag. I know, I know, it's not great. Compared to the Uncle Sam one, it's incredible. After Uncle Sam buries the young delinquent, Uncle Sam says, Good night. Yep, that's it. I know that both my and your off-the-cuff one-liners are better than, Good night. Something that helps empower the cheese is the acting in this film. I mean, if you can call it acting. This movie has some of the most awkward delivery I have ever heard from pretty much everyone on screen. The award for worst of the worst acting goes to the kids that play Jody and Blind Wheelchair Boy. But hey, they were young when this was made, and the script is straight up terrible. Here are some incredible lines of dialogue from the movie. Jody finds out his teacher is a draft dodger, so he says to himself, I'll do whatever the president says to do, because he knows better. Gee, Jody, maybe that blind patriotism is a bad thing. Since the blind wheelchair boy needed a line to one-up this one, later in the movie, the boys and Jed, who's played by Isaac Hayes, who I know from his time as chef in South Park, are looking for Uncle Sam. Blind wheelchair boy says, I know where I'd go if I was him. I'd go get my wife back. Whoa, BW boy. That's a really creepy thing to say especially for a young boy. Jody comes off as a little sociopath the whole movie. When he learns his mom's boyfriend, Ralph, helped beat the IRS in court, Jody gets mad. The kid sticks up for the IRS. No one likes the IRS, Jody. After this, Jody goes to his room and fantasizes about murdering Ralph. Ralph ends up getting killed by Uncle Sam, and when Jody finds out, he basically says, Good. Damn, Jody, you cold little sociopath, you. At the end of this movie, Jody might even be possessed by Uncle Sam. 
After Uncle Sam is shot twice with a cannon, where the first cannonball misses and explodes for some reason, and the second hits Uncle Sam and sends him flying back into Jody's mom's house, which also inexplicably explodes, the movie ends with Jody throwing away his army toys. Thing is, we then end on a slow motion shot of Jody's face, where he gives a creepy smile as the screen shatters. I see this as leaving the story open for a sequel, Uncle Sam 2, Jody Makes America Great Again. I think you could make a legit terrifying movie about a patriotic sociopath. The gore in this movie is awful, but in a fun way. All of the blood looks like strawberry jelly. The worst offenders are the punk kid who is buried alive's broken leg where the protruding bone looks so fantastically bad, and the draft dodging teaches hatchet in the face incident. It looks like I could bend over with a piece of toast and scoop up some scrumptious jelly goodness right next to the corpse. Uncle Sam's design is laughably awful. He's wearing this awful rubber suit that you'd expect to see on someone who jumps out of the darkness at you during Fright Fest at Fiesta Texas. Actually, I think the Fright Fest crew puts more effort into their costumes. To really cement how terrible it looks, we get a scene where Uncle Sam pins his old medals to his bare, rubbery chest in slow motion. It's stupid. I get that this movie is supposed to be a horror comedy, and to be honest, it's funny. Thing is, I wasn't laughing where the movie wanted me to. I was laughing at the terrible acting, fake-looking gore, and random sound effects. There are a bunch of random stock sound effects used when no sound effect is needed. If I see someone putting a flag up a pole far away, I don't need it to be accompanied by comically loud squeaky pulley sounds. While I'm on the subject of terrible sound design, Uncle Sam's voice is abnormally bad. He sounds like a robot that's out of breath all the time. The soundtrack sounds like it was taken directly from a daytime soap opera. Now my favorite part of the entire movie is the part where a pervert is peeping on a girl while dressed as Uncle Sam. The pervert is on stilts and everything. This part of the movie is absolutely hilarious. A lot of crazy things happen in Uncle Sam. It's a wonderful trip that I recommend. The movie is horrendous, but it is a perfect example of a bad good movie. Some final thoughts. Why does Uncle Sam have to kill the girl who was helping her mom barbecue? All she did was smoke a little pot. I didn't even see her mom helping. That barbecue girl felt more fleshed out than anyone else in the movie. Fun fact, the director of Uncle Sam also directed the Maniac Cop series, which I might get back to eventually. Number 4, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, 2014, directed by Anna Lily Amirpour. A vampire is roaming the streets of Bad City. She feeds on bad and homeless men. She meets a guy named Arash that's trying to get by. He doesn't know she's a vampire. Arash's dad is a junkie. The vampire befriends a prostitute. Arash kicks his dad out of the house. His dad goes to stay with the prostitute and forces her to do heroin. The vampire kills him. Due to the death of his father, Arash decides to skip town and asks the vampire to go with him. He realizes that she killed his father due to her having a cat that he had his father take with him after being kicked out of the house. Arash is conflicted, but decides to drive off with the vampire anyway. The unnamed vampire is the killer. This movie is a Persian-language American vampire western. 
The director calls it the first Iranian vampire western. The film is based on a short film that won Best Short Film at the 2012 Noor Iranian Film Festival, which is basically a film festival for movies that showcase Iranian culture. It wasn't actually filmed in Iran. But the characters speak Farsi and all of the actors are of Iranian descent. A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is a beautiful film. The entire movie is in black and white, but somehow comes off more vibrant than most films that are in color. The visuals are absolutely stunning. I recommend checking out the movie based on its aesthetic alone. I had no idea this wasn't actually filmed in Iran until I looked further into the production. It was filmed in California. The costume design and locations used are perfect. In the beginning of the film, you think the vampire only feeds on bad people that deserve to die. Her first victim is a pimp slash drug dealer whose look is 100% based on Ninja from Deantward. The guy is shown to be a real jerk. We get our goriest kill here, the vampire bites off his finger before sucking out that good good blood nectar from his neck. The finger bite is well done and practical. The film overall is not very gory. Most of the blood you see is on the vampire's face after feeding. The next victim is a random homeless guy that we don't know anything about, so the vampire's morality is shown to be a little wishy-washy. The last victim is Arash's druggy dad, and he deserved it a lot more than the homeless guy. A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is set in a fictional place called Bad City. You know the city is bad because they literally have a ditch they throw corpses in. The movie never really goes over why there is a corpse ditch, but it's an interesting concept. After Iranian Ninja is killed, Arash comes into possession of Ninja's drugs. Unfortunately, Arash is a terrible drug dealer. He gives away drugs for free to girls he has no chance with and even partakes in his own supply. Arash, the drugs are finite. You don't know where Ninja got them. Make the most of this opportunity. The vampire scares a young boy straight, then steals his skateboard. There are a bunch of really cool shots of her skateboarding with her chador flowing in the wind. A chador is a body-hiding garment. The vampire wears hers in a way that kind of makes her look like Batman. It's awesome. The soundtrack is pretty great for the most part. There are some interesting choices thrown in that are a little overbearing, but most of the selected music is great. The worst thing about this movie has to be its title. A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is incredibly long and awkward to say. At least for me. Maybe it sounds better in Farsi. It should have obviously been called Good Vamp Bad City. The film does not spell out a ton for the audience, which I think is a strength. I don't know how the vampire came to be. I don't know how Arash will react once he figures out that the girl he's driving off with is a vampire. I don't know why the vampire decides to go with Arash. The first time they talk, Arash is dressed as Dracula. Does the vampire find that offensive? Arash basically demands that she leaves Bad City with him, when he doesn't even know her name. They hung out like twice? She wouldn't even eat a hamburger on their second hangout sesh, which is a huge red flag. A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is a beautiful, well-acted film about a mysterious vampire. Check this one out. It's basically a better version of Twilight. Number 5, When Animals Dream, 2014, directed by Jonas Alexander Arnby. A girl named Marie seems to be coming down with something. She starts a job at a fish factory where she meets a boy named Daniel. 
she helps take care of her catatonic mother. The doctor, who has been checking on Marie and her mother, shows up at their house and realizes that Marie is going full werewolf like her mom. He tries to sedate her, but her mom springs to life and kills him. The mom is a werewolf and the doctor was keeping her heavily sedated to keep her from turning into her werewolf form. Some townspeople murder the mom after finding out about the doctor's death. Marie then kills the people responsible for her mom's death and runs off with Daniel. Marie, her mother, and a group of townspeople are the killers. If the townspeople had killed the mom out of self-defense, they wouldn't be on that list. They drowned her in a tub when she was sedated, so on the list they go. This movie is somewhat similar to A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. A girl that's a monster runs off with a boy after the girl bites some people to death. When Animals Dream is a lot less visually stunning though. Even though it's in color, the color palette of the film is incredibly muted. Everything is low contrast and heavily gray. This makes sense given the bleak nature of the film. Marie's life is just beginning and she's already doomed to an existence of hiding out of fear of being hunted and killed. Luckily she ran into a dude with a werewolf fetish. Daniel, you barely know this girl. Why are you willing to throw away your life to be with her? I mean, as we see in the movie, there isn't much of a life to be had in the town they live in since all anyone does is work at the fish factory. Maybe Daniel's a furry. That would make a lot of sense, actually. There should have been a scene at the end of the movie with Marie all werewolves out holding hands with Daniel in his fursuit. When Marie's in werewolf form, she is pretty grotesque looking. The makeup done for werewolf her is fantastic. Her nails protrude from their beds in gruesome fashion, her teeth become sharp, and the perfect amount of extra hair is added, making her one of the most believable werewolves I've ever seen. Don't get me wrong, I love ridiculous, huge werewolves like the ones in the Howling and Underworld series, but the werewolves in When Animals Dream just feel like they could exist. When Marie ends up going on her werewolf killing spree, most of the characters she kills totally deserve it. Two of the victims are very rapey towards Marie, and most of the others are responsible for her mom's death. The only victim who doesn't really deserve to die is a guy named Felix. He originally tries to help Marie out, but once she flaunts that she's a werewolf, he helps get her captured. That makes sense to me. There is obviously a history of werewolf attacks in this town, so Felix thinks he's saving lives by helping to rid the town of the new werewolf menace that is Marie. Marie is on the killer list for turning Felix into a corpse. Even though this is a feature-length movie, not much happens. The acting and gore are great. Marie wears the ugliest hat I have ever seen when she's at work at Fishland. It's like a giant blue Mario hat that she puts her hair up into. I don't think there is anyone alive that can pull off this hat. I get that the workers aren't supposed to be worrying about fashion while on the clock, but damn is that hat absolutely horrendous. When Animals Dream is a well-made movie, but I wouldn't say it's a fun or entertaining experience. If you're in the mood for a depressing coming of werewolf movie, check it out. Number 6, Burying the X, 2014, directed by Joe Dante. Max has a girlfriend named Evelyn that he's about to break up with. Before they break up, a satanic genie doll curses them. Evelyn dies after she's hit by a bus on her way to a public place where Max was going to break up with her. After some time, Max goes out 
and reconnects with a manic pixie dream girl named Olivia that loves all the horror stuff he does. Evelyn comes back from the dead, and Max keeps her a secret for as long as he can before she kills his half-brother Travis and kidnaps Olivia. Max and Olivia try to kill Evelyn, but aren't able to. Travis comes back as a zombie and kills Evelyn. Everyone besides Evelyn lives happily ever after. Not looking both ways before crossing the street, and Evelyn are the killers. Gremlins 1 and 2 are some of the most entertaining movies of all time, so I decided to check this movie out mainly because Joe Dante directed it. Anton Yelchin is also in it, and I'm a fan of the work he did. Unfortunately, this isn't one of his best performances, but I blame the script for that. Bearing the X is a horror comedy that's light on both horror and comedy. The movie is basically a misunderstanding rom-com that's incredibly uninspired. The main plot stems from Max not telling Olivia that his ex-girlfriend Evelyn died. Since Max didn't spill the beans about the death, when Evelyn comes back as a zombie, a full half of the movie is dedicated to Max trying to hide her existence. We have the classic two dates to the dance episode formula, but instead of only having to bear an overdone cliche episode for 30 minutes, we get an entire movie solely due to Max's omission of Evelyn's death. Sure, he feels guilty for her death, but that's no reason not to tell the new girl you're interested in the full truth. If the new girl is into you, the fact that your old GF died isn't going to change anything unless you tell the new girl you murdered your old GF with your own two hands, on purpose. Maybe I'm wrong though. All the romantic comedies I've seen show that starting a new relationship with a bunch of lies and hijinks is the best way to find true love. Most of the performances in the movie are mediocre. Ashley Green plays Evelyn, and at least she brings a certain charisma to the role. Everyone else is just phoning it in. Dick Miller, the neighbor from the Gremlins movies, shows up for two seconds to play a crusty old cop. I like seeing him again. In this movie, they talk about the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which I didn't know was a thing prior to my watch. How I didn't know about it is beyond me. A cemetery with a cool name where a bunch of famous people are buried seems like something I would have looked up at one point or another. I guess I just thought it was the title of a Father John Misty song. I can hear your disappointment in me for not knowing about it from here, but I know about it now. That reminds me of a humorous anecdote. I was looking up a picture of Judd from Pet Cemetery, as one does when they are making a reference to the phrase sometimes dead is better, and when Google popped up the movie, I thought I had been misspelling cemetery my whole life. Silly Stephen King decided that the kids who made the Pet Cemetery sign didn't know how to spell it, so it's spelled S-E-M-A-T-A-R-Y, when in reference to the book or film. I felt like I was going crazy for a whole 30 seconds. If you've never seen Pet Cemetery, I highly recommend it. It is a very fun movie with a splash of actual creepout factor, as in Zelda. That character is spooky. Anton Yelchin is buried at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. R.I.P. Anton, you are a delight on screen. Back to burying the X. There isn't a lot of gore, but the gore that's included is done well. I enjoyed Evelyn's decaying looks throughout the film. The zombie makeup is well done for both zombies. Most of the blood during the bites and fights is practically done. Is this film worth your time? Nope. If you really want to watch a movie about a girlfriend coming back from the dead as a zombie, skip Bearing the X and check out Life After Beth. 
It's not great either, but it's a little more interesting than Burying Your Ex. Funny how they came out in the same year. You can also check out Warm Bodies if you need more zombie romance. I don't really remember it at all, which can only be an indication that it's probably terrible. But what do you expect from the zombie romance genre? Anyway, one last thing. How the hell does Olivia own her own ice cream shop in Hollywood? She has to be a trust fund baby or something. Through the film, her shop is barely open and no one is even in it until the end. Number 7, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, 1996-2003, created by Joss Whedon. I have never seen the Buffy the Vampire Slayer series and Kat is a huge fan of the show. It was only a matter of time before she got me to start it, so I decided that it's finally time. The seventh topic is going to be Buffy related until I finish the series. It's going to be a lot more freeform than my normal show slash movie reviews, if you call them that. I'm going to try and include all the killers I can remember. So far, I have watched the first season. For those of you that aren't familiar with the show, it's a Monster of the Week show where Buffy, the Slayer, and her posse take on new evil every week. Her posse includes Giles, which I always say incorrectly, which is supposed to be Giles, the Librarian and Slayer Trainer, Willow, a smart cookie, and Xander, a terrible idiot. I really hate Xander. I don't like his face. I don't like his personality. He's awful. Giles and Willow are cool though. Another member joins the group a little later on into the season. Her name is Jenny. She's the computer teacher and she's a techno-pagan. Obviously, she's awesome. There is an overarching plot too, which I'll talk about a little later. From memory, here are the killers of the first season. Vampires, obviously. A giant praying mantis lady. Teeds possessed by a hyena. A nerdy computer boy. A robotic demon. And a regular demon disguised as a magician are the killers. Out of all the episodes in the first season, the best has to be iRobot, you Jane. This terribly named episode is a cautionary tale about online dating in the 90s. You don't know who you were talking to in those chat rooms. It could literally be a demon. The demon gets sucked out of a book and enters the World Wide Web after the book containing him is scanned. He then works his demon charm on Willow, who finally thinks she's landed a boyfriend. When she finally meets her cyber date, she is shocked to find out her crush is in fact an ancient demon who is now back in the physical realm as some sort of fiendish robot. The runner-up episode is the one where a gang of teens possessed by a hyena eat the principal. R.I.P. Mr. Flutie, you were too pure for this world. God, why couldn't it have been me? Let me trade. Mr. Flutie is barely on the show, but he was my favorite character. He gets replaced by a mean jerk principal. It won't surprise me if the new principal turns out to be an evil goblin. During the first season, we have a big bad named The Master that appears throughout and what a big bad he is, as in bad bad. He is one of the lamest villains ever. He's not threatening, cool, interesting, or scary. He's basically a super lame cult leader. Buffy ends up killing him, which hopefully means he's gone for good, barring Buffy PTSD flashbacks, which I already saw in the first episode of Season 2. The Master of Vampires, more like the Master of being a lame-o, am I right? 
Buffy is a 90s time capsule that you can open anytime. The fashion is an attack on anyone who views its eyes. It's like they purposely made sure each item of clothing they wore clashed with everything else. The show is full of snarky, over-the-top Joss Whedon dialogue, which hams it up a ton. The ham is great, though. So far, I'm having a lot of fun watching this series. It's goofy and a good time. I might have to watch the awful movie that started it all for the next episode of Blank is the Killer. If you hate the idea of the seventh topic being Buffy-related for the foreseeable future, let me know. That'll do it for episode 23 of Blank is the Killer. Somehow I got this far into the episode without bringing up that Jim Carrey movie. I hope you had fun listening to me go over so many rom whores. You know, romantic horror films. I know that this episode was a little light on crazy gortastic stuff, so I'll make sure to include some of that content in the next episode for y'all. I hear a movie called Baskin will scratch that itch. If you like what you heard from me, why not rate Blank is the Killer on iTunes? I love to be reassured that people enjoy the content I create. If you hate iTunes, as we all do, why not post a horror movie you love that I've either talked about or maybe haven't even seen with the hashtag BlankIsTheKiller on Instagram. I'd love some crazy, obscure recommendations. As always, a big shout out to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website, which allows it to pop up on all your favorite podcast apps. Good news! The issue of the disappearing episodes has been resolved. All episodes of Blank is the Killer are now available, all 1 through 23. The next time you'll hear from me is July 29th. To hype you up a bit, I promise to cover Unfriended Dark Web on the next episode. It looks like absolute garbage. I can't wait. Till next time, think before running off with a monster you just met.